Getting right into Shavuos, and um, as we generally read Parshas Bamidbar right before Shavuos, which starts with our Sinai. Look at the very first Pasuk, right? Fourth book of the Torah. Hashem spoke to Moshe in the Sinai Desert at the entrance of the tent of the meeting on the first day of the second month of the second year after leaving Egypt. Okay, so we left the Egypt one year. The next year, the next year, a year later, on Rosh Chodesh of the second month. So we left in the month of Nisan. So it's Iyar of the second year. So 11 months. 11 months after we left uh, Mitzrayim. Lamar say, and the, what, what the Parsha is about to get into is a census. It's gonna talk, we're about to take a census accounting of Klai Yisrael. Hashem is going to teach Moshe how to take accounting of Klai Yisrael. We know it was always done with the half shekel. Um, and we don't count Jews individually. And Hashem today, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll see why. Okay, so let's start. Hashem spoke to Moshe, B'midbar Sinai. What does it mean like a midbar, like a desert? So the uh, Chazal, our sages, immediately kick in and they say, what's this whole message of the desert? Why does Shem do everything out in the desert? A desert is, is you know, it's, it's incredible. It's, it's, you ever been to Arizona, Nevada, these places where there's, there's creation that hasn't been touched since my sobracious. You know, it's like, you know, Hashem didn't make the world with paved roads. You know, not that there's anything against paved roads, but like you go out, you see the way Hashem, you know, made things. It's, it's majesty. It's, it's incredible, the, the, the desert. It's untouched. And Hashem spoke to Moshe in the Sinai desert. And we learned this going into Shavuos because we have to learn that success in Torah is that approach of being untainted. When we learn words of Torah, we have to really like clear our minds and say, okay, so what is the Torah telling me without any preconceived ideas? That's a desert. There's no preconceived ideas. There's nothing in existence in my desert right now. There's nothing. It's, it's, it just is what it is. That's why it was given out in the desert Rev. Um, Sternbach points out as well, Rav Sternbach Shlita, who's the head of the Eidah Haridus in Eretz Yisrael, he says, this also hints to us that, a, um, that the same way a desert is open to everybody. There's no gates around the desert. It's just open. So too, if a person sincerely wants to connect to Torah, there's no gates. Everybody has the ability. There's no excuse to say, this is going back to, it's so available, right? It's available, it's out there. You just got to, just a little click, and a person has the opportunity to, to study Torah. Anybody who wants to connect to Torah and take pleasure from its holiness is able to do so. In a, that is the Asay Tov. That is what we should do to perform good. What about the Sor Meirah? Everything is, you know, what to do and what to stay away from. So the, the Sor Meirah is, of, of being like a desert, is the same way if I were to go out into the desert, I'm alone, and I'm not influenced by society, that's also success in Torah. Success in Torah, you need to have the willingness to do this alone, even if, I, even if uh, there's nobody else helping me out. Now we, Baruch Hashem, we have community. You know, we have, we, we're here together. We're, we have each other. And that's, that's such, a, it's such a chesed that Hashem gives us to be able to be around other people that are you know, helping us live constructive lives. But if other people, if there are people who could impact us or influence us negatively, we have to make ourselves like a desert and sometimes just move away, go away and, and separate ourselves. I saw earlier today a beautiful idea that um, the Medrash Rabbah on this Pasuk, is amazing, Medrash Rabbah says, what do you, Hashem spoke to Moshe b'midbar Sinai in the Sinai desert. So says the Medrash, look at what happened. When the Torah was given to Kal Yisrael, there were three things that, that kind of were hanging on to the coattails of the Torah that were necessary for the Torah to be given across. Here we go. Ash, there was fire. There was lightning, there was fire. There was Mayim, there's water, Okay. And the midbar with desert. So the measure says. Can I just ask a 
please. Very good. So what's the message of all this? What's the message of all this? So initial impression, certainly, that Hashem's the one who's controlling everything that really to us as humans is the most frightening within nature. Because you, we think we can't control these things, right? This is, it's, uh, you know, going back to the, the idea of Shemitah, a farmer is completely dependent on whether rain's going to come, whether the sun's going to be out, whether you're completely dependent. And these things really are the most, what we get scared of are things that are the furthest out of our control. So Hashem was showing us, this is, don't worry, this is not like Hefker, this is not like, you know, random ideas. I control all these things. So that's just initially, the initial thought. But listen to this, this is amazing. The, the Mahri Asad, Rebut Asad, he says that these three ideas of fire, water, and desert is telling us, and I, to me personally, this, this hit me very deep. And Bezshem later today and tomorrow, I'm going to keep contemplating this idea. It's an idea that we know, but for some reason I feel like I need, it, I need to let it sink in a little deeper for myself. Fire, water, and desert are three, uh, represent three different approaches to living a life connected to Hashem. How so? Fire is what we call in Yiddish a bren. There's a burn. There's a desire. There's, there's things happening. Okay? So fire is warmth and heat. And when it comes to performing a mitzvah, it's proper to have passion. When it comes to the performance of something, don't just do it, da, 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 right? There's, there has to be like we, what we call fire, eshator, the fire of something, the, the drive. Water actually cools off fire. Water cools off passion. It cools things off. What does that mean? That's what, how a Jew has to serve Hashem by staying away from things. If I have a passion that's not being used in a holy way, then you have to use the water of Torah to cool that off. And say, okay, you have a desire to do this, you have a... Uh, cool it. Cool it. Like, take it easy. Take a step back. That, and that's just as important as fire... In one place, you have to know how to compartmentalize ourselves. Use this midah for performance of mitzvos, and don't use that very midah that we want you to use for the water. The reason why this is so deep is because we have to know exactly what the Torah wants us to do. And just because I'm acting and I'm just a passionate person is not an excuse to always be a passionate person. We have to know the right place for each thing. So you have the fire, you have the water. Okay. What about the desert? The desert, says the Maria Asad, is there's times where a Jew has to learn that the right thing to do is nothing. If there's things taking place, and this does not demand of me to go perform, and it does not demand that, so sometimes I just need to make, make myself like a midbar. You're just like, you know, like the parable we gave with the fox with the cold. I have a cold. I don't know, right? I mean, I'm, not, I'm not cool. I'm not this. I'm not cooling off. I'm not getting hot. I'm not getting passionate. But shav v'tishtok. The same way a desert, there's just silence. There's nothing. It just sits there. Sometimes we have to know that the right thing to do is to sit there. You know, there's an expression. If you, don't, if you have nothing good to do, don't do anything. That's doing something. You have to know that nothing is good. There are, you know, there, there are people, and again, I'm not, I'm not an expert, I'm just sharing what, I've, what my rabbeim have shared with me and something that you know, I, I have to uh, work on, something I think about. There's this concept in sometimes, let's stereotype the younger generation, because I hear my kids saying, talking about awkward silence all the time. That's like there's the awkward silence. Like you, you can't have silence. In, huh? It's awkward. Yeah, awkward. It's a, you know, it's like nothing, nothing happening. Huh? Especially when you're dating, right? But in general, if if you're walking with somebody, you're going for a walk with somebody. You know, you go for a walk with somebody, and there's there's nothing particular 
that's there to be spoken about. You don't have to say anything. We, we have to learn to be comfortable with nothingness because that's something. That's, you know, that's something there. That when when um, Rev Noach Orluik Shlita came, I believe it was in November, towards the end of November, right? So he spoke and he, he, he quoted Revolba where he said that Revolba would tell his Talmidim to, uh, don't take a Gemara or a Sefer with you on the bus everywhere you go. Some people are always walking around with a book. Yeah, not a, my father's a kind of Rachel was always always at a sparim, and I, I, that's how I learned how to be a baseball player because his, the dashboard was covered with sparim, and I would sit in the seat, and every time he'd make a turn, I have to catch all his sparim, you know, <laughs> you know, put it back on the dashboard. That was like that was like my practice. Um, he always had a sparim. Okay, so okay, he was thinking, uh, to, not to negate that, you know, but. Revoba would say to his Talmidim, you shouldn't always have Sfar. Because you have to learn to be with yourself too. You have to learn to be with yourself. That's a healthy place to be. We're in the Shema. We're, we're, sometimes we always have the books, and we're supposed to have the books. 99% of the time it's good to be studying it, but we can't be uncomfortable if we don't have that. That was his idea. His idea wasn't the... You, just, you have to learn not to be uncomfortable with yourself. Nothingness is a creation too. Because you're, you're, you're living in a very real existence. Yeah. Maybe that's why Hashem had COVID. That it gave a lot of people, um, unfortunately, an opportunity to be in a different situation and to... Very good. Think about different things. It's a very fast-paced world. And what Linda's saying is, you know, uh, that's a big message of that a lot of people learn from COVID. Is you're going to sit by yourself. And the Sutton, yeah, okay. The the Sutton knows what he's, you know, (laughs) he he knows how to make it up. Okay, but cell phones is not the same as being busy, you know. uh, But uh, you could make yourself busy, I guess. There's always, you could always scroll and screen out, but it's a. so it's a very, it's a beautiful idea. It says the Maria getting back, he says, what do you mean the Torah is given with fire, water, and midbar? Because to serve Hashem, we have to be comfortable with these three traits and know when to use each one. There's a time for fire, there's a time for water, and a time for desert. And if you're missing one, you're not going to have, you're not going to be complete in Torah. This is, I don't know, to me, this is something I, I need to keep, I need to keep um, contemplating. Now, Rav Meir Shapiro who every time people mention his name, they say, oh, the founder of Daf Yaimi, right? Um, now, he, he got the idea from his Rebbe, the Chartkover Rebbe, actually gave him the idea, but Mayor Shapiro ran with it, and he, uh, he certainly created it. See, he says uh, a fascinating idea, um, which is that fire, water, and desert are the three, are three elements of the DNA that went into us as a people by the time we accepted the Torah. Because fire was, Avram Avinu was thrown into the furnace. That was the very first dedication to a one God. Where Avram Avinu said, this is, this is it. It's, it's just me and Hashem. You can do anything else you want. You can do it. I know the only reality is God. And... <coughs> It took fire he, when he's thrown into the furnace. So that was his first, that, that was an action of Mesiras Nefesh that was instilled into our DNA. Okay? The water was later generations. So you have, of course, everybody doing the right thing, but you have Avram, like, being Meiser Nefesh, we'll call it, giving up his physical life for this. Interestingly, I don't know why the Akedah is not included in this. I don't know. Yitzchak was willing to give up his life. I don't know, I don't know why, you know, what about metal? I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But the next time Maybe that's that... When. Huh? What, the, the ram? Yeah. Hashem sent it. Yeah. Bring wind in. Okay. Maybe. Okay, it's just interesting that, that it, you know, Akedas Yitzchak here yeah. is not mentioned. I'm not sure. Yeah. The next thing says of Meir Shapiro of water 
that was when we were stuck at the Yamsuf and Nachshon ben Aminadav jumped into the water up to his neck and then it split and we were like he was expecting to die you know he was but he's like oh, listen I got a lead I got a I'm part of Shev Yehuda I got a lead so that was Nachshon ben Aminadav and all Klal Yisrael followed into he followed into the uh, um, into the Yamsuf with Mesir Nefesh. and the desert as we know that which went into our DNA is the Midbar. It, say what we want. When, when, every time you mention the, the generation of the desert, we, we know they're greater than we can ever fathom, which is mind-blowing because the mistakes that, that were made in the desert, you, you have to laugh, otherwise you're just going to cry. We're going to be speaking all about Shuas of we camp by the mountain and we're there was Achtos. Yeah, and now we got the Torah and it's amazing. Right afterwards, like, hello? We fell off the cliff. Like, what? And then we make a mistake. And then we complained about this. Then we complained about that. You're going through this. And as, uh, who did I hear? Um, who did I hear this one? Maybe Rabbi Arlovsky. I don't know. He's like, either the Torah was written by God or an anti Semite. Like, somebody, there's something wrong over here in, in the way that it's all written. It's like, this is what they did wrong. And then this is what they did. And it's like, hello, can you, can you stop? Like, you just learned in the last time to not complain. And now we're complaining. It's, it's, you know. So to us, it's hard to fathom. We can ask these questions. But they certainly were the Dar Hamidbar. They certainly were the, the Dardea, they're known as. The generation of being all-knowing. They were Zoha to, to the Torah. As great as they were, what happens? We leave Mitzrayim. And what do we have? Dough. That's all we had. I mean, we had gold. We had things with us. But we were walking into a desert where HaKadosh Baruch Hu until today says that Zacharti Lachesani Yoraych. I remember the kindness that you did in your young days as a nation. By following me out into a desert. Now, once we're in the desert, we started complaining. Fine. But to be, to be willing to leave civilization... Imagine, imagine having to leave civilization and you're just walking out into a desert with nothing, with your families and everything, community and just the people. And what do you have? Money that can't do anything for you. We had gold from Egypt, but what does money do if you have nothing to buy? So that was Mesir Asnafesh for us as a people. It says in Meir Shapiro, the Torah was given with Aish, with Mayim, and Midbar means these three commitments were there and placed into our, into our uh, DNA from, from the get-go. Okay. Now, the Alexander Rebbe, Rebbe of Alexander, Hasid is called, Alex, uh, called Alexander, the, the, the Alexander Rebbe says a beautiful thing. And... Receiving the Torah in the desert was, a, it's called a marriage between Klai Yisrael and HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So let's, let's give a little introduction to finances in Halacha. Okay? It's a fascinating, fascinating concept that until you learn Gemara and, and uh, you go through with the Shulchan Aruch, it's like it's just a mind-blowing idea. How do, how do transactions work? How does a transaction work? Why is certain transactions called stealing and certain transactions not called stealing? Okay? So let me ask a question. I want to buy your salad. If there was salad there. <laughs> I, want to buy, I, I want to buy your salad. You say, um, if you give me a piece of paper that says 10 on it, you can have my salad. So I give you 10, you gave me the salad. What made it mine? You being willing to give it to me? Okay. Well, then I have a question. If I were to find a $1 bill on the street, I can keep it. Mm-hmm. Who's giving it to me? Hashem. Hashem? Christian. Well, why don't I say Hashem's giving me your salad? You're standing in God's way? Well, no, he's giving you the opportunity but who, to negotiate. Who, how's it entering my domain? You want it. I want it. So I could take it? Do, you hear, the, the, we're getting to, to the lumdus. Lumdus is like the kishkas. We're getting into the kishkas of how transactions work. What makes something yours? 
What makes Eder's? Wanting it, taking it. Properly. Doing it properly. Properly. What makes it proper? The Torah. Okay. So what, how does the Torah say a transaction works properly? How does it work? So this is, this is fascinating. It's a fascinating idea. So here's how it works. In order for something to be able to be called mine, I need... That I don't need because if I find it, I could take it also without giving value, right? So, in order for something to be mine, I need that there's nothing holding it back from becoming mine. What holds it back? So, this is what the Torah says a person's mind is amazing. If I give you $10 and take your salad, but you did not want to sell it to me, I am stealing. Why? I gave you $10, I gave you the value. No, because your mind never left it. And since your mind still wants this salad, it's withholding it from my ability to own it. I'm not capable of owning something if somebody else's mind is on it and it was right, rightfully theirs, using your words. But if there's nobody else's mind on it, there's a $1 bill on the street, I can pick that up because there's no mind holding it back. Hence, I can bring it into my domain. Now my mind is on it and it's okay. But now here's the fascinating idea. If let's say there was the owner's mind still on that $1 bill, and I pick it up and take it, I'm a thief. So how do I know? If anything that I ever find has a person's mind on it or it doesn't. And the answer is, this is the laws of Ashavas Aveda, which is, that's why you can only take something that the owner can never get back. And I'll explain why. If I find a $1 bill on the street, why am I allowed to keep it? I know that their mind is not on it. How do I know that? Here's the deal. If they were to come and say, Tender, that's my dollar, what is my responsibility to do, according to the Pasuk and Devarim in the Torah? My responsibility is to seek out and make sure it's really there. So I have to say to them, prove it. They have no way of proving it. Since they have no way of proving it, they know they're never getting it back. Hence, their mind is off of it. Hence, I'm allowed to keep it. That's how transactions work. However, if I find something on the street that's a $5 bill with a smiley face on it and I pick it up and take it, I cannot keep it. Suppose the person had just been paid some money and that money was on the street and then he gives Very good. There. Very good. So money may be a little different than objects mm-hmm. because we're more lenient with keeping money and I'll tell you why. Since money is fungible... People can't really prove it's theirs. For example, if you were to stick a $5 bill with a smiley face into a soda machine and you push a soda, you get a soda and $4 change. I come along two hours later and I stick a $10 bill into the soda machine. I get back a $5 bill with a smiley face and four singles. So now it's mine. It's rightfully mine. If you were to come along and say, oh, I could, uh, you know, I had a $5 bill. <laughs> it used to be yours, but maybe you put it. So actually money, there's, there's, less ways to prove it's yours. The more broad an item is the hard, and, and is used, the harder it is to ever get back. If you, were to, if you were to find a loaf of bread from Schnucks with a kosher seal on it, it's never been opened, you know it's kosher, do you have to go give it back? Absolutely not. You don't have to give it back because Schnucks doesn't even know it's there. Since it's meant to be sold, it could be anybody else in the city. So the broader something is, the less responsibility I have to return it. But getting back to the, getting back to the main idea, and this is amazing, okay? The way, I can, the way I take ownership of something is by that person releasing their mind from it. Got it? If that person never released their mind, it doesn't matter if I paid. It doesn't matter if I decided I won. It doesn't matter anything. If their mind is on, ownership is intent in halacha. Completely intent. It's an amazing thing. Now, let's bring this over to Bamidbar and Shavuos. Okay. So the Gemara in the Dharam says, how does marriage work? How does marriage work? A ma- here, here's how it works. So it's, it's actually, step one of marriage is, is a monetary transaction. A ring on a finger doesn't need to be a ring on her finger. A man can give a woman a $5 bill and say the marriage is valid that way. Okay, so how does marriage work? So marriage is an acquisition. What's the acquisition? The woman 
is willingly saying to the husband, if it's not willingly, it's not a marriage. Because since it's entering a financial state, and this is actually Hashem set this up as a financial transaction, not to minimize it, but to protect the relationship. And that is if a woman never sold her rights to marriage. Every woman has a right to marriage. I own her, you own rights. I own rights. You have it? If you do not willingly sell your rights and remove your mind from those rights of marriage, you're not married. So here's what happens. A man stands under a chuppah and gives, the, and, and gives a woman a ring. And the rabbi, a competent uh, Masada Kedushin, officiating rabbi, is going to look at the witnesses and say, and this, this is what they always do. They say, is this worth a shavapruta? Does this have, have financial value? The witnesses have to see that there's financial value. And then he looks at the kala. And he says, does this have financial value to you? And are you willing to accept this as a transaction by accepting the money you're going to give over your rights to marriage to be married to this man? You're going to remove your mind from those rights and give it over to him. Because that's the only way for the transaction to work. And if she says yes, the husband takes a ring that has value. A ring, again, is just a custom. The user ring doesn't need to be a ring. And he hands it over to the wife, and by her accepting the money, they are now married, because she gave him that right. If either way doesn't work, it's not a transaction. She never removed her mind from that. She owns her rights still. She owns her rights, and nobody can walk over and say, yo, you're married to me, no, 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 here's her, no shyness. Yeah. If she wasn't in on this, then there's nothing to talk about. Okay. Wow, so, there Huh? Are there a lot of people who want to marry? I hope they are. Why wouldn't they be married? If they, if they didn't have this intent when they well, got married. Well, most people, most people know that you're actually getting married. And once you're married, and, and you know... Uh, so, so the intent has to be that you're in on the marriage. That's, the, that's really the intent is, that I'm in on this. You can't have a forcible marriage. You can't have a forcible marriage because of intent. That's right. It's not, it's, it's, uh, it's the whole thing is null and void. It's null and void. It's, it's... Okay. So now, this is all based off of the Gemara Nadarim Daflam Adam Aleph. Okay? 30a. Now, says the Alexander Rebbe, in order for there to be a valid marriage, the woman has to agree to nullify her own rights, so to speak, and say to her husband, you know, anything that I was withholding, any rights I was withholding, I'm, is no longer in the way, and now... We can have a marriage. So here's what's happening. She removes her mind from the rights to marriage. What does that do? That makes the marriage now available. Hefker, it's ownerless. So it's like a dollar in the street. When the, when the husband comes and takes it, so she removes her mind. It's becoming ownerless. That's what owner... That's, and now he's going to take it in. Okay. So here's how it works. If a person does not make themselves like a desert... In their, rela- in their marriage to Hashem. We're all wives, so to speak, in our relationship with Hashem. We're a spouse. We're a spouse of Hashem. If we don't, if we're not mafkir that, and we stay tough, and no, this is my, you know, this is, uh, I, I'm not getting in on this. I'm not going to make myself hefker. I'm not going to remove my mind from what's called my anochi, my selfishness, my my concern about myself, and I'm not in on this relationship with Hashem, so you can't, you, you can't acquire the Chachma of Torah. You never entered the marriage with HaKadosh Baruch Hu and the Torah. So what do we need to do? We have to make ourselves like a midbar. What we're doing is, says the Alexander Rebbe, a beautiful idea. You know, how we're, you know where success in Torah comes from? We say like this, I, Hashem, you know, you gave me my rights. I'm going to hold on to those rights. And Hashem says, yeah, very nice, very nice. You could do that. Let me tell you something. If we want to have a real partnership over here, and I have this Torah, I have this Torah over here, the way to marry into my family, the way to become one, so to speak, is by being mafkir, by making your own selfishness or your own agenda ownerless, and once it's Hefker, I could acquire it. 
But until you let me do that, I can't really be in a, it's not as strong of a bond. Now, of course, Hashem made us, Hashem's a manufacturer, there's always going to be a bond. You can't run away. You know, once a Jew, always a Jew. That's, that's for sure. But, but to really be in a, in a substantial relationship, we have to be willing to make ourselves like a desert where it's ownerless. And once we're ownerless, Hashem says, oh, thank you so much. Now I can acquire it. We're not standing in the way anymore of, of the relationship. That's how the Alexander Rebbe, I found this to be a beautiful, um, a beautiful concept to, uh, to contemplate. That's how he explains what's taking place in the, in the first Pasuk of our Parsha and, um, and you know, uh, coming, uh, coming up to Harsinai. Okay. So, so what, what's the command? The command is to count the, all the heads, uh, lift up, literally, lift up the heads of B'nai Yisrael, lift up their heads, according to their families, according to their father's house. Now, families are referring to tribes. And how do we know that even though Judaism follows the mother, the tribes follow the father? Because it says, by the counting, you want to count the numbers according to the father's shevet, according to the father's tribe. And this is very interesting. This is something that I was thinking about yesterday. Hashem is telling Moshe, I don't only want a accounting. Now Hashem obviously knows our numbers. <laughs> he needs Moshe to count, doesn't know how many Jews there are. Right? Right? Just look at the machine. <laughs> I mean Hashem knows so Hashem's giving accounting to let us know that we're being counted, and we'll see soon why. People count things that are precious to them. And anything that's not precious, you don't really care how many, how many are in existence. But Hashem tells Moshe, not only do I want a number of Klal Yisrael, I want a number of each tribe. Don't tell me there's 603,000. I want to know each tribe, total number. Why? Again, Hashem knows. Hashem doesn't need accounting. Why does he want to know each tribe? So perhaps it's because each we're not Klayosol with 11 tribes. We're Klayosol with 12 tribes. So in addition to us individually being counted, we also needed to know that our strengths are being counted. Each Shevet brought a strength that was needed for Klayosol. Each Shevet had a strength, and sometimes their strengths contradicted each other. There's a strength of business, there's a strength of Torah learning. Is it a contradiction or is it a partnership? There's a strength of being uh, Shimon and Levi, where you're out and you're Kanoi, you're zealous. Eh? And then you, you have the strength of, um, of Shevet Dun, right? Who's, who's there out there uh, doing Kirov, taking care of everybody, not being so zealous, letting people do their own, right? And each Shevet's bringing their own thing to the table. Some of them are, you know, like, how can you, uh, how can you be friends with this guy? Uh, the guy's, uh, you know, she's such a lowlife. Why do you reach out? That's the Shevet of, that's that. Because there's a Koach in Klal that's telling us that's supposed to exist. And there's supposed to be the zealousness of Shimon that's supposed to exist. And we as Klal you can't just have zealous. You, you have to, and we have to figure out how this contradiction works. So Hashem's telling Moshe Rabbeinu, it's not enough to count numbers of Klai Yisrael, I need Shevet numbers. Because you can't just know you're part of a whole, you also have to know where you fit in with the whole. What your job is with the whole. They call it in America, good cop, bad cop type of thing. You can't only be a good cop, you can't always be, only be a bad cop. You have, you have to know when and when. There's a time and place. Going back to the Aish, the Mayim, and the Midbar. There's a time and place to use, to use each passion. And this is a... You know, this is a, 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 um, a, an incredible theme that we're just, within the first few verses, we're just, it's constantly popping up where there's, there's an element of responsibility to know how to reign in our midos. We have to know how it applies, when it applies, and that takes wisdom. It takes wisdom. It doesn't take smartness. It doesn't take doesn't take so, so much of knowledge. It takes experience, practice, being a listener, being just 
learning from other people who have experienced life and, and seeing that, you know, j- just because you're, you have a, a strength in a certain midah doesn't mean you don't have to learn how to use it. You have to learn how to use each particular midah. Okay. So that's why we're counted according to our father's homes, the tribal lineage, Mimisbar Shemos called Zohar the Gilgalosim, every Zohar according to uh, his head count. All right. Now, uh, I saw a uh, beautiful idea on this Pasuk from the Baal HaFla. Okay, the, Baal, the, the Sefer is called the Baal HaFla. The author of the Baal HaFla was Rav Pinchas Halevi Horowitz. He was the Rav of Frankfurt. He passed away in the early 1800s. Um, he was Rav of Frankfurt, and he had a very difficult uh, Rabbonus. His the people, his uh, community did not like him. They didn't like him. They, they, they felt he was uh, too tough. But he was known to be one of the greatest G'daylam. One of the greatest G'daylam in Klai Israel. So he quipped, he quipped that, uh, this is like a yeshiva shijok, okay? he quipped that it's very appropriate that his name is Pinchas. Because Parshas Pinchas, the Parsha Pinchas, always falls out during the three weeks. In the cycle of how you read the Torah, it's always going to come out like right before Tishbev, like between Shivas Badamas and Tishbev, you're going to read Parshas Pinchas. You know, it's a very sad time. We also always read Parshas Pinchas every. Um, we, we read it on Rish Chaydesh, sometimes on Yom Tif, You know, we. Uh, so, he says it's appropriate that his name is Pinchas, because when when he's in his regular routine in his regular place, nobody likes him. But then he goes out, he's the, all of a sudden it's a yomtif. <laughs> you know, you know, he goes to talk in other towns, everybody wants to hear what he has to say. But in his own city, it's like, Rabbi, like, <laughs> not so interested right now. So he would, that was his, uh, that was his quip. So the Balafla, the Rav Pinchas Halevi Horowitz, he said that, uh, a beautiful idea. When we count Klau Yisrael, we know that we don't count by number. You don't say one, two, three. We don't count each other like that. We have various shtiklach, various other ideas. Now, we, we ultimately we end up counting. That's what's amazing. You're allowed to count each other, just not by numbers. You can make a bracha. Hamaytzi lechem in Aretz has ten words. So people use that to know if there's ten people for a minion. Sometimes you're walking into a minion, you're like, Baruch Hashem, Lokeinu Malach Alam, Hamaytzi lechem in Aretz. Yeah, we got a minion. Okay, let's go. You know? Everybody's got their own way to uh, to figure out whether there's a, a minion or not. But we don't count. We don't count exactly the numbers. So Balafla says why. He says a beautiful idea. He says that, you know, when we came down to Mitzrayim, when Yaakov came down to Egypt, so the Pasuk and Bereshus, Perak Memvav, says, Kol All the nefesh, all the soul that came down with Yaakov, which is singular, similar to like dwelling at the mountain, right? Vayichan, we encountered the When Yaakov came down to Mitzrayim, there was one nefesh, says Rashi, that Matsasi um, Bivayikra Rabba, I found in the Medrash in Vayikra Rabba that Yaakov and his children are called one nefesh, but Esav is broken up into six nefeshos. Okay, it says nafshos, beso, the, the souls of his house. But they, they serve all sorts of gods and all sorts of things. And Yaakov and his children, they came down to 70 people, but the Torah calls them nefesh, call them one soul. So what is this? He says a beautiful idea. He says, you know why you're not allowed to count numbers? Because you're saying that Klai Yisrael separated. It's great. It's beauty. You're saying one yid, two yid, three yid, four yid. You know what you're saying? You're four different yid, and, and that's not true. That brings magefa, that brings plague. However, if, as, you could count, but if you don't separate numbers, that's fine. Because you're not, you're, we're nefeshachas. We're, we're one nation, we're one entity, we're one thing. With being counted, now things that are counted means that they are, um, things that are counted, the halacha is, it can't be nullified. Let's, let's learn a different halacha over here, because this is a, a we'll end with this, this theme, but why not just, uh, this is a, a beautiful idea. If you have a piece of cheese that falls into a chalant, a fleshy chalant, are you allowed to eat the chalant? How much cheese? How much cheese? How much chalant? Right? Much is it nullified in 60th? Okay. So I have a little piece of cheese that falls into a big chalant. Can I eat the chalant? What do you say? No. No? Yeah. Why not? 
Because you don't want to mix them. You don't want to mix it. Okay, say one second. Yeah, one sixtieth. One 60th always? What if I see the cheese? Can I say the cheese isn't there if I see it? Nullified means it's not there. I view it like it's not there. Yeah? So listen to it. If you have a piece of cheese that falls into a flavor chalent, can I eat the chalent if it's 60 times the amount of the cheese? The answer is yes, if I can't see the cheese. But if you can see the cheese, don't tell me it's nullified when you're looking at it. Maybe take the cheese out. Excellent. So take the cheese out and you're fine. But you can't just eat it if you see it. Nachon? You can't just eat it if you see it. It's still not being honest. Well, that's the halacha. <laughs> that's the halacha, so that's being honest. Okay? So you took it out, and now and there's nothing else you could see, so the rule is it's nullified in 60. That's the rule. No problem. Now there's an exception. Not everything is nullified. You know what's not nullified? Things that are counted. Things that are counted individually are not nullified. For example, for example, um, if you were to find, if you were to, if it were to fall in to the chalent, something that is sold individually in the store. Okay, so let's think of an example. Something dairy that falls individually into a store, uh, sold individually. Um, like a bottle of milk. Um, well, that, that, that spreads out. Oh, oh. That spreads out. Um, kind of like uh, looking for something that's, that's sold. Um, a wedge of cheese? Yeah, maybe a wedge of cheese. Okay, something, that, something that's, that's counted by itself yeah. is not nullified. Not null- because you can't if it has enough chashivas to sell it individually it's not nullified and so for an example an egg is never sold individually it's only sold by the dozen so an egg could be nullified an egg would be nullified because it's, it's not sold when a, if you have a sesame seed that, that's nullified nobody buys one sesame seed you buy a container of sesame seeds but things that are sold individually could be nullified in a, uh, cannot become nullified it's called a dover sheba minion Dover, a thing, a minion that is counted. If it's so chashuv that you would sell this individually, you can't tell me it's not there if it has this pre-existing chashivas, this pre-existing importance. Okay? So, getting back to Kal Yisrael, this is an amazing thing. We're a nefesh achas, we're one soul, says the Balafla, you know why you're not allowed to count Jews? Because there's no such thing as four different Jews. We're all nefesh achas. However, however, what we do count is through half shkalim. Because we do need to know that you're not going to have 600,000 if you don't have 1, 2, 3, 4. You can't get to 600,000 without being a number. So what's fascinating about us in, as Yidin is we're counted individually. That's what ultimately ends up with. This is incredible how, how, this, how taking a sense of the so works in, so in line with the symmetry, with halacha, and the way that Hashem d- expects everything to work, you know, from a cholent to a person, to everything. The way it works is, we're one nefesh, we're one nefesh, <coughs> but we're also a dover shev We're also something that can be counted. But we're not multiple nefashos. So instead of counting nefashos, we count through other things. Because a yid is never nullified. You can't be nullified. There's no such thing as me saying, I'm nullified in a cholent of 13 million Jews. No, I'm, I'm a Dover Sheba minion. Now that you're counted, now that I'm counted, now that each of us are counted, so we're a nefesh achas, but we also have the ability to stand as a Dover Sheba minion. Gemara Shiro there. We always have the ability to stand as, as something that's counted. And that's how the Balafla um, <laughs> explains why. And I, I, this was an amazing idea. Like, oh, you're not allowed to count Jews. Why not? It's amazing. Is you know why I can't choose? Because no such thing. No such thing as four different Jews. There's four different kochos, four different strengths. But we're still in Nefeshachas. And, that, and uh, you can't separate that. Okay. We'll hold it here for today. Uh, any questions, thoughts? Yeah, so I, I asked my brother, I called my brother today and I said like this. You know, over the next few days, you, all, a lot, if you turn on classes on Shavuos, you're going to hear about Klai Yisrael camped at the mountain. Right? We counted. We had it, and therefore, only once we had achtos, once we were together, then Hashem gave us the Torah. Then well, that's when you're worthy for Torah. When everybody's together, eh? 
This is a beautiful idea, very nice, okay? Very nice. Here's the question. How did they get Achtos before the Torah was given? What, what led to it? Because that's the secret for bringing Mashiach, right? <laughs> if I were talking about, oh, we need to have Abbas Chinam, yep, but it, it's all shallow. That's like the people saying never again to a Holocaust, and then uh, they, they keep saying never again when countries keep, uh, you know, going at each other and bombing each other out. And never again what? You could say it from today till tomorrow. If you don't stand up on behalf of, uh, of victims, so it is again. Don't, don't say never again if it is happening again. So, we, we come to Arzinai, and we are already How did we get there? How did we do it? Doesn't, uh, it doesn't seem to say. Maybe we didn't. You're saying maybe Hashem gave it to us as a gift? No question. So you're saying, but does is Gullus necessary to bring Achtos, or is Gullus the Gullus that we're in is because of there's a lack of Achtos? Like I, I hear what you're saying that you need to use your experience to become one, but the question is, how, how do we even do that? How, how do we take an experience that we have and fuel it and bond it? In a way, to become to get that achdos, like, because they had that shared experience and they had the empathy. Shared experiences. So, yeah. does that mean in order to have achdos, you need to have shared experiences? No, they, have, they, develop, they develop the empathy. They develop the empathy it's by the connection. It's a connection we had with each other. It's a connection. How did they get the connection by their joint experiences? No, I think Hashem. No, I think. So you're saying maybe it was a gift. Hashem needed to give us the Torah. He's like, all right, listen, in order for this to happen, you're going to have to be together, all right? You guys could do this for a day, right? Okay. Always says a crisis. Or three days. It takes a crisis to bring the Jews together. Mm-hmm. So that the terrorism or some kind of crisis. So it, it, it's Chav- Yeah. Ramesh Asher, the head of Agudah Sov America, Zechariah Levracha, when he would meet with new politicians, his opening joke uh, to like break the ice, you know, was always that you should know the Jewish people are like tea bags. We don't get going till we're in hot water. That's a that's it. He would that's a, that, that was his. Uh, you know, it's unfortunate. It's unfortunate. You're saying when you have these crises, that's when you get together. That's when you get together. That's when you get together. The question, yeah, but it's got to be that Hashem gives us the opportunity to have achdus without going through that. Because we know that the crises is an offshoot of a lack of achdus as opposed to there needs to be a... You know, the way, the re, what we're speaking about is the current reality. But that's, we know that's, that shouldn't be that way. It shouldn't be, it shouldn't be that we need to go through a crisis to, to bring it together. So I called my brother today. I was like, hey, what's the deal? What's the deal? So he said it's an interesting question. He, you know, he, he hadn't thought about it. But he, that we started schmoozing and what we walked away with is perhaps, perhaps, and this is, is not complete, but I think if we contemplate this, we might be able to break it down. Perhaps the idea is that when they stood at Sinai with their experiences, they all had the same goal. At the, for those few days... They all had one goal. And that's why by a crisis, we come together. Because nothing else matters right now. There's tzara. Tzara is, means narrow. We're narrow-minded. We're focused on one thing and nothing else, nothing else exists over here. So we came to our Sinai and we had one goal. And when you have a joint goal, you could be one nation with one heart. So now the reason why this... It's a nice idea... Uh, it's a nice idea, and it's true, because when we stood at Har Sinai, we were all there for the same purpose. So I, so I said to my brother, I said, listen, I said, so does that mean that in order to have real achtos nowadays in Kal Yisrael, you need that everybody has the same goal? So he said, maybe. He said, maybe. Maybe that's the avod that Hashem wants us, is that you can't just say, oh, I love every person, and uh, th- there's no change in it. 
maybe uh, included in that is teaching, educating, being with each other, making, making our objectives the same objective. And once you're able to do that, then, but to just say there needs to be there needs to be love and care and nothing else without having a joint goal. I can't even imagine. Maybe, yeah. I'm saying, I don't know, but I can't even imagine how you can have it. Right? It's impossible. If you don't have a joint goal, I think it's... So it's a joint goal bringing Mashiach? That's what it has to... That's what, that's what you're saying. That's what we have to go. That, you know, that's... So they say if, we, if every Jew keeps says so that right th- maybe that's an expression of this this idea I don't know I don't know this is just something we you know I was talking to him about this morning and we were both of us were just it was like a a little bit but it's an interesting idea that you can't just because too, too many times I've heard like you got to be one person but but what happened for them to get there because that's the secret to Mashiach I mean that, that's what we're all looking for so it seems the avoda is more. You know, the real avoda, the real service to, to get there is you can't just use the word love. You, ha- you, you, it, you, you, ha- you have to be living, there has to be experiencing, there has to be education. And when Klau Yisrael has a single goal, and Klau Yisrael has a single goal, will be ke'ishachar balevechar, which goes back to what the Balhafla was saying in, in that why you, you don't count Jews separately. Because... As much as we have our being individualized, we're not really one, we're not really one until we're all one. Until until we're joint in our goal, we're really not Kali So this is uh, pretty wild. Potential. Yeah. And so and so maybe maybe the maybe the goal is to us to help each other bring out you know, be through education, through whatever, whatever, maybe mm-hmm. through hard times, maybe through who, but to pull that potential. Pull that greatness there, out. Pull that greatness out. Yeah, which goes back to all the way, the, it's amazing how this all comes full circle. Yeah. The beginning of this year, the Chazanish's Psak on cremation, where people nowadays don't know how to rebuke each other, you know. Right. Or we don't know, it's like, you know, we, we have to learn how to, uh, you know, not, not give each other rebuke, but how to, if you cared enough about the person, you'd learn how to do it. You'd, you'd learn how to talk to somebody. You'd, you'd, you'd learn how to... If you're able. To, if you're able, yeah. If you're able. Yeah, and then learn how to give it off to somebody. You figure it out. You figure it out if it's a... Uh... Yeah, good stuff. All right, Yashikaya. Chavez. Chavez.